just to say, um, someone's going to be doing a little bit of video camera in today. Um, yeah, ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah don't, don't worry about going outside and doing your hair. You all look great. All right, um, and if you are wanted by the Met, uh, just, I don't know, put your head down or something. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry, shouldn't joke about these things. Okay. Um, we're going to look today at uh, the church and the poor, um, the Christian response to the issue of poverty. Um, and my responsibility today is to bring you... Uh, I guess face to face with the claims of Jesus and not to apologise for that. It's, too, it's almost too easy to look at what Jesus says and then look at your own life and think, oh, they don't match up too good. Let's just kind of round the corners off what he says. Let's compromise it. Let's dilute it so we feel more comfortable about the way we're living rather than saying, I need to repent. So, um, and then, like I say, I know it's a slightly sadistic, but every time I prepare a message, I go through the, uh, the challenge of coming face to face with what God's word says, and I think I'm not going to let you guys get off the hook because uh, I face it uh, every week. So here we go. So, so, so do you. Poverty is one, of, is one of the most devastating killers on the planet. Thousands die daily um, through want of decent water, food, or shelter. Now, sometimes this is a result of living in a harsh climate. Often it's a result of um, injustice and um, human greed. It's always the result of Adam's sin. I'll say that again. Sometimes it's a result of living in a harsh climate. Often it's a result of human greed and injustice. Always it's the result of Adam's sin. I want to just explain this quickly. Originally, when God made the heavens and the earth, the creatures, Adam and Eve, there was a three-way harmony. There was harmony between God, man and God. There was harmony between man and man. Harmony between man and creation. God was very clear. Do whatever you like, eat whatever you like, have a great time, just that one tree. Don't eat from there. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Death is a lot more than just dying uh, physically, expiring physically. It has all kinds of um, terrible symptoms. Adam and Eve disobeyed, and as a result, the man-God relationship was fractured. The man-man relationship was fractured. The man-creation relationship was fractured. All of it became alienated from God and from one another, and the result is what we see today. If Jesus is the last Adam, as the Bible says he is, the one who comes to undo what Adam did, then Jesus must deal with the problem of poverty. Otherwise, he's the saviour of a different world, not our one. If Jesus is the saviour of the world, then he must bring with him the solution to the problem of poverty. Because the Bible says he's the last Adam, he comes to undo what Adam did. And so the church, who's the body of Jesus Christ, must meaningfully engage with the issue of poverty. If it doesn't, then we're not what we say we are. Just leads to the question, who are the poor? First question, who are the poor? There's two categories. Number one, the... Oh, mate. (laughs) It's all right, took me by surprise. Uh, Number one, there's the spiritually poor. We're not not doing that yet, John. Oh, sorry. No worries. I love that laptop. (laughs) Ever since we spilled the coffee on it, it's got a life of its own. It's running on caffeine. Uh, No worries. Eh? 
Yeah, don't like mice. Right, okay. <laughs> Two categories of the poor. Number one, the spiritually poor. This is good. Don't like wires. I'm bringing this thing out. I'm bringing this thing out. This isn't happening, is it? This isn't happening. Get away. Okay. I'm going to be speaking like I'm in a revolving circus. I'll make sure I get everyone. Spiritually poor. This is good. This is a condition that God loves. What is it? It's that state of heart where you recognise you have nothing to bring to God. You've got nothing to commend yourself to him. You can't come to the table and bargain with him. You should save me because I read my Bible. You should save me because I go to church. Oh, I'm nicer than so-and-so. All of that is utterly hated by heaven. It's self-righteousness. What God loves is poverty of spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so if there's anything in you that says, well, surely God will accept me because. Surely God will let me into heaven because. And it's something about what you are, who you are. You're not as bad as so-and-so. You are self-righteous and you need to become spiritually bankrupt in order to get saved. If your attitude is that and you call yourself saved, you need to go back to the starting block and think it all over again. Because you've misunderstood what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has nothing to commend himself before God and is in dire straits and need for mercy and grace. That's a Christian. A self-righteous Christian is a, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms. And that the church's reputation for self-righteousness is a tragedy. I don't know how it got to this. So the spiritually poor is a state approved of by God. Then you have the materially poor. The materially poor, either because they're economically deprived or because they are um, powerless victims of um, oppressive governments or powerless victims of injustice or difficult life circumstances. This is a social evil opposed by God. And we're going to spend the time on this one today. The people should live without access to basic necessities or without access to friends or without access um, to those things which make life what God intended it to be is terrible. And Jesus feels strongly about it and his church should feel strongly about it. So I want to ask you a question today. Is God biased towards the poor? Because some Christians say God is actually biased towards the poor. I want us to just tussle with this for about three minutes, then we've got a clear, we've cleared the ground and we can really press forward. Let's look at Psalm 113, verses 5 to 9. Who is like our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. This is God's heart, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. That is one psalm I could have read to you, 1 Samuel 2, verse 7 and 8. I could have read to you Psalm 12, verse 5. I could have read to you Psalm 14, verse 6. I could have read to you Psalm 34, verse 6. Psalm 35, verse 10, to name but a few. Let me read you a quote by a man called David Adams. In total contrast to the idolisation of celebrities that we see in our world, it is not primarily the wealthy and the famous with whom God delights to fraternise. What is characteristic of him is to champion the poor, to rescue them from their misery, and to transform paupers into princes. That is God's heart. But then you have to ask the question, but if God gives special attention to the poor, does that make him partial? Is he a God who has favourites? Is he a God who treats one this way and one another? I wouldn't have thought so. Listen to Leviticus 19 verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness 
shall you judge your neighbour. Or Romans 2 verse 11. For God shows no partiality. So how can God give special regard to the poor and remain impartial? Here's how. The world is unjust. If your starting point is that the world is a level playing field, then everywhere you go from there, you're going to be all wrong. You're going to be skewed. The world is not a just place. If you think it is, it's because you're a Westerner. And you think everyone else lives like you. And they don't. The world is unjust. The world is oppressive. And for the majority of people, in, the majority of people in the world go go to bed hungry. That's on the macro scale. It happens on the micro scale as well. You can get zoom in on one nation, an affluent nation, or a poor nation, and you find injustice there too. Those who have no voice, those who have no influence, those who are unable to do anything about their circumstances. And so. What we see is this, is that God's special regard to the poor is a manifestation of his impartiality. He's looking to level it out. That's what he's doing. David Adams says this, the God of the Bible is on the side of the poor precisely because he is a God of impartial justice who cares about everyone. God delights in taking the lowly and marginalised and seemingly insignificant and redeeming them, giving their lives significance as they are woven into his magnificent purposes. God loves to be a voice for the voiceless and a defender for the defenceless. Listen to Proverbs 23. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. That's God. He will plead their case against you. In those days, the fatherless had no defender. There was no social services or or foster care, anything like that. The fatherless and the widow were the ultimately vulnerable people. And what would happen is this, that it, there's a warning there to those who would want to try and encroach upon the land of the widow and the fatherless because there's no man to defend them. And God says, don't you dare do that because I, will, I am their redeemer and I am strong and you will feel it if you do that. It's God's heart for those who are vulnerable and those who are needy. Now what I want to do for the rest of this time is track God's heart for the poor through his old covenant community, Israel, then onto Jesus, then onto his new covenant community, the church, to help us understand how to respond in a godly way to the problem of poverty. So let's look at the materially poor in the Old Covenant community. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. If you hate history, sorry. It's going to be brief, we can do it briefly, but one of the, one of the most disturbing symptoms of our generation is that we think life started when we were born. Yeah? We think that history started when we were born. You know, it's been going on a long time, and in order to understand who you are and where you fit, you need to understand the big picture. So a little bit of biblical history. You ready? Gird yourself up. If you hate history, shake yourself and make yourself wake up, okay? Because you've got to get this. Adam and Eve sinned. They banished from the Garden of Eden. This opened up the generations that we call the antediluvian generation, those who lived before the flood. This was marked by oppression and marked by violence and it ended in judgment of the flood. Okay? Um, so, so God says, Noah, his wife, Noah's three sons and their three wives. Eight people in the ark. The ark lands after the, after the rain subsides and then we have um, a fresh commission from the Lord, similar to Adam and Eve, to go forth and multiply. They go forth and multiply. A few generations onward we get to Abraham, who is called and chosen by God as the father of the Hebrew nation. Abraham is called out of a place called Ur and he's called towards um, what was then Canaan, what is now Israel, and God promised him that land. So Abraham lived in the land but as a nomad. He wasn't given it as his possession, it was a promise. And then Abraham's son Isaac, the same, lived as a nomad in, in, in Israel. And then Isaac's son Jacob 
lived as a nomad in Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph. Joseph was betrayed and sold by his 11 brothers and he ended up living in Egypt, where through amazing circumstances he became the second in charge in Egypt. There then was a terrible famine around the whole land of Israel and the areas surrounding Egypt, except for Egypt. At that point, Joseph, um, again through very complicated circumstances, but invites his whole family to come down to Egypt that they may stay there and have food to eat and be fine and safe from the famine. They do so, end up staying there 400 years. Over that 400 years, they go from being guests to being slaves. Obviously, different pharaohs come and go, and then the pharaoh comes who forgets about Joseph and just thinks, who are these people? Actually, they multiply like rabbits. They're a threat. We're gonna, we, they could overtake us in war. So they begin to kill their firstborn sons and drive them into harsh slavery. God raises up Moses to deliver them from Egypt. Moses delivers them, you probably know the story, through the Red Sea. They come out into the wilderness. At that point in the wilderness, they become established as God's people the Hebrews, the Israelites, as God's nation. And the way they get established is through the law. God gives them lots of different laws. And it's part of a covenant, an agreement, that makes them God's people. And I, wanna, I want us to... Um, and, and part of that law is constant attention to the poor and the vulnerable, which was completely alien to the nation surrounding them. And constantly God says this, here's why I'm giving you this law, because you were once poor, you were once aliens, you were once vulnerable, you were once oppressed, but I rescued you. Never forget that. And this is a big deal for Christians. Never forget where you came from. Never forget that you are a vile sinner. And you are now a child of God by his grace alone. Because if you forget that, you'll start looking down on people. And you'll start judging people. And you'll start thinking, oh, why aren't you like me? You're like you because God had mercy on you. You're like you because God opened his eyes. God opened your eyes. You you would never have seen it. So God constantly says, now now here's some of the laws. I'm not going to put the scriptures up on the screen here. It would be laborious, but just quickly, it's very interesting. Some of the laws, I think you'll find them very intriguing. Number one, if, if one Hebrew lent to another Hebrew, they were not to charge interest on the repayments. Number two, if they employed workers, they were to pay them the same day and not make them wait. They didn't live in a supermarket culture where you buy for a week or you buy for a month, you'd buy your food every day. And so the law was, a worker works for you, at the end of the day you pay him then. You don't, you don't withhold it, you don't do anything that's even, oh I haven't got quite enough, i to pay you tomorrow. No, that is oppression, that is wrong, you do not do that. Law number three, they were not to look badly on the poor among them. God says they were not to harden their heart or shut their hand toward them, but to give out of their abundance. And then the Lord's blessing was promised as a result. You know the temptation sometimes, someone's in a tough spot and you look on them with a bad eye. What does that mean? You start thinking, well, if you'd been wiser, then you wouldn't be in this position. If you'd saved like I did, and you begin to look at God says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's oppressive, it's judgmental, and it's wrong. Law number four. Those with land were not to take their own grapes that had fallen to the ground, but were to leave them for the poor and the traveller. So pick your grapes, by all means. If 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 a bunch falls, you don't touch them. They're for the poor and the traveller. Beautiful. Creative. Those who forgot a sheaf of wheat and accidentally left it in the field were not to go back and get it, but leave it for the traveller, the fatherless and the widow. Yeah? You leave it. You drop a fiver. Same principle. It's not even a joke. Those who beat their olive trees were to beat them only once The stuff that comes down, you gather up, you don't beat them again, you leave whatever didn't come down for the traveller, the fatherless and the widow. Those who reaped their fields were not to go to the edges. So you've got a square field, you go around in more of a circle, you leave the edges. Why? So that the fatherless, traveller, the widow can come and glean freely. 
is God's help. Interestingly, the Israelites were protected by the Lord from both wealth and poverty. God protected them from both. The economic balance was restored every seven years. This was known as the release. Everyone that was part of the covenant community would be forgiven his or her debts. Just release them. You think, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. God was more interested in the peace of the community than in the individual concept of fairness. Every 50th year, even the property that had been sold due to debt, etc., was to be returned to the original landowners. Now, the community of Israel never actually did this. Surprise, surprise. They were unfaithful. And what you find is is that God took them out of the wilderness into the land and they were increasingly seduced by the surrounding nations into worshipping their gods and living by their standard of ethics. They were supposed to be a light to the nation where the nations would look and say, this is amazing, no one else lives like this. What's the reason for it? They say the Lord, the nations say we're going to worship him. God redeems the world back to himself as a result. They didn't do it. They compromised, were seduced by the other philosophies of the world, caught up with selfishness of the heart, etc., etc. In the end, God completely brings the whole nation under judgment. The whole nation is judged. Um, Not just for idolatry, but for social injustice. Isaiah 58, verses 9 to 10 says this. If you take away the yoke from your midst, um, symbolising oppression, the pointing of the finger being judgmental and harsh, speak in wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom will be like the new day. Will be like the noonday. So Israel failed. But the Lord knew this was happen and so entered Jesus. Now Jesus, among many other things, is also the true Israel. He's not just the son of God, he's the true Israel. Let me, let, me, let me give you some examples. In the book of Matthew, when Jesus is born, Herod sends to the region where Jesus is and, and kills every baby aged two years old and under because he's, he's threatened by this king. Joseph and Mary are warned in a dream and they take Jesus and they live in Egypt for a certain amount of time. And then after Herod dies, the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Herod's dead, it's now safe to return out of Egypt back into Israel. And so in Matthew it says this, it says, um, it quotes a prophet, Hosea, from the Old Testament, who said this, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, here's the deal. Imagine I'm Hosea, that's the past, that's the future. Hosea lived after the Israelites came out of Egypt, but before Jesus was born. So when Hosea prophesied, out of Egypt I called my son, he's speaking about Israel as God's son being brought out of Egypt. He's speaking about Jesus, the true Israel being brought out of Egypt after he'd fled there. See how that works? Jesus is the true Israel. Not only this, uh, Jesus was baptised in the water, then led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. The Israelites were brought through the waters, the Red Sea, baptised into Moses, and then led into the wilderness for 40 years of testing. Through, through Jesus' baptism and the time in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days, it was all very deliberate. He's saying, I am the true Israel, but I'm going to succeed. Through Israel's testing in the wilderness, they constantly failed and were judged for their unbelief. Jesus, when he was attacked by Satan, stood up, fought and won. Jesus said, I am the true vine. Now you read that and think, that's a nice image, it's all nice. No, it's much more significant than that. All through the Old Testament, Israel is God's vineyard. Israel is God's vine. 
Jesus says, I'm the true vine. He's the true Israel. Okay, so Jesus, the whole of God's promise is summed up in Jesus. And he, he came as a poor man. Jesus came and identified with the poor. Listen to this quote. In the, in the incarnation, Jesus identified with the poor. Renouncing the wealth of heaven, Jesus was born into a poor home. Joseph and Mary availed themselves of the Lord's provision for poor people and brought as a sacrifice a pair of doves instead of a lamb and a dove when they came to the temple to present their child to the Lord. During his public ministry as an itinerant preacher, Jesus had no home and few possessions. To one who asked for discipleship, he once said to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He talked from a borrowed boat, rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, spent his last evening in a borrowed room and was buried in a borrowed tomb. He and his disciples shared a common purse and would seem to have depended for their support on a group of women who sometimes accompanied them. The poverty of Jesus seems to be beyond question. Yet he was a skilled carpenter by trade, which means he belonged to the craftsman class of skilled workers and not to the class of landless peasantry. Point, Jesus was voluntarily poor. He didn't have to be. He was voluntarily poor. And he deliberately chose this in order to express something of God's heart for those who are often excluded, disqualified and forgotten. At the start of his ministry in Luke 4, Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now we follow Jesus, don't we? Alright. <laughs> so what should our response be? Because you get the monks. Part of a monk's vow is poverty in many of the orders. You vow poverty because it's seen as more spiritual. Then you get the prosperity churches. God's will is that you be rich. All read the same Bible. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Does it make you wonder? What are you? What's going on here? It's more spiritual to be poor. It's more spiritual to be rich. Surely there's some clarity. Let's get some clarity. Anyone up for a bit of clarity here? All right. I would say this: that one of the failings of the church is that it's failed to let the gospel sink into its economic understanding. Um, we don't allow the gospel to challenge our love of money. That's the big God in our nation. And in the West, the love of money, materialism, stuff, holidays, furniture, stuff, the good life, the nice meals. We love it. I'm not saying they're wrong before someone gets defensive. But it's wrong to love it. It is. It's okay to enjoy it, but it's wrong to love it. Look at the early church. Acts 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Let's have a look again. Acts 4. Now the full number... It's alright. No worries. Back you go. Other direction. You guys are thinking, man, this sermon's going to last forever. See how many more slides are worth to come? I know, it's going to be so long. We'll get a bit of lunch in halfway through. No worries. I can read it, that's fine. Thanks, John. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This was not imposed community life, it was spontaneous community life. Those with surplus were keen to sell it and help those without. 
That's the kingdom economy. Now, the church has a history of starting projects in the community when its own house is not in order. This is the people of God. This is the church. It's important you get this, because the church is an expert. We'll start, we do something for the poor. Well, let's just take a step back. How are the poor in the church? Are the poor in the church being looked after? Very important. Very important to ask yourself this. Because you're in danger if you just keep serving those outside without getting your own house in order, you're in danger of hypocrisy. Because why? Because the people you're reaching, they think, wow, these people are really generous, really kind. Then they get saved and come into it and they're forgotten about and everyone ignores them. Why? Because they're outreaching the lost. You think, oh, I thought they were really kind, but it just was to get me in. Listen to Paul, Galatians 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a priority, there's an order here, a godly order. Or you could put it like this, charity begins at... So what does it mean for Revelation Church? What's the way forward for us? Well, to neglect one another, to neglect the saints, and just go after the lost is suicide and completely unbiblical. Know that for sure. We are to love one another, Jesus said, then the world will see it in action and say this is the real thing. Is someone moving home? We help. Is there decorating to be done? We help. Do we have items like lawnmowers, power tools, sewing machines, film projectors, decorating equipment in our cupboards? If so, why don't you just for the fun of it not call it your own and make it available? Or are you too precious about it? Because someone might scratch it. Then the question is, well, how does this help those that live on the estates around us who live below the poverty line? Or how does it help those with no proper water in the world? Well, in a number of ways. I would say this firstly, if the centre is strong and true, if you're living out of a true centre of generosity and unmaterialism, if you're living like that and being spirit-filled, then what you bring people into that you're reaching out to will work. Otherwise, you're just being really short-term and really short-sighted. You need to understand how to develop it. Then as you do your outreach and you, you reach out to those in the mums and tots group and others that we just reach, they come into it, the thing is real and it's life-transforming. Not only this, it's a privilege to be part of New Frontiers, a worldwide family of churches. We give thousands every year to New Frontiers. Most of that goes to what? Most of it goes to church planting in nations where there is extreme poverty. See, why, why church plant? Well, you can easily go and... We were, heard yesterday, we went for a day about remembering the poor. Tragic. Um, someone who was speaking went to Guinea-Bissau, one of the poorest countries in the world, was driving down the street and he just... Loads of brand new combine harvesters all dotted along the road. Brand new, just sitting there. No one using them. He said, what's going on here? And they said, oh, well, what happened was, is the United Nations um, gave loads of money and bought loads of these combine harvesters and gave them to us. And, but as soon as one little thing breaks, even a tiny thing, we don't know what to do with it. So he just stays there and rots. What is that? There's no infrastructure. There's no, it's Westerners coming in saying, this is what you need, bang. And just, or the thing in Uganda where people, people said, you know, malaria is such a big deal. If we just had money for mosquito nets. So untold mosquito nets sent to Uganda. Someone goes out there, they're piled high to the ceiling. They say, What's, why aren't you using them? Oh, we hate mosquito nets. It's horrible sleeping under them. They're too hot. But you see, the Westerner thinks they know. That's what you need. That's have it. No, you need it to be on the ground, worked out locally. So what we do is we work with churches locally who understand their community and we give to them and they work it out on the ground. 
and it's a mixture of kingdom, preaching the gospel, but serving the poor. And there's opportunities to go and be part of church plants across the nations. And, but look, if you're going to do something, this is not throw money. Let's give ourselves. Hey? Let's give ourselves to the poor. And it may, be, it may mean becoming completely poor in order to just, that's how they live, I'm going to go and live like it. Fine. It may mean you're going to go and reach, um, reach the rich and you have to live like that. Fine. But whatever it is, let your heart be captivated with Jesus. That's the issue, your heart. That's what this whole thing is about. What the Bible's pushing for is a paradoxical situation that works really well. Here's what I mean. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. So if we live like this, there will be no poor among us. Hallelujah. Seven verses on. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. What is going on there? Here's what's going on there. As we do what we're supposed to do, there's no more needy people among us. But part of what we're supposed to do is reach out to people. And so constantly new needs come. As you reach out more, there's more needs, so you continue it again. People, you, you, part of a church, you're in a recession, people are going to lose their jobs. We, there's a new need, you meet it, okay? So there's constantly new needs springing up from within, and new needs coming as we're reaching out to people, but we go on meeting them. So there's a movement. The thing isn't static. You go on, you go on developing a robust and strong culture of generosity, of giving. We're going to look in detail at a brand new way we're looking at doing this at the family meeting. We're going to go into detail. I haven't got time now. But so you develop a robust bus, generous community that genuinely, genuinely meets needs um, appropriately, but then a, a, a community that's reaching out constantly into the needy situations and needy areas, and you look to meet them also. It's not just giving money, it's debt advice, it's the whole thing. It's holistic. But that's what God is after. I want to ask one more question, then we'll finish. So are the rich allowed in the church? Are people with more than one house allowed in the church? It's an important one, isn't it? What of those who find themselves relatively well off? Are they allowed to remain in the church without feeling guilty? <laughs> Big question. It seems they most certainly were in the early church. But it also seems they had to express great depth of character. Their load was not an easy one. Listen to um, Paul in 1 Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, so not to think of themselves as better, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, so not to let their heart get seduced, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's not guilty life, okay? Praise God for every good thing. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. They are to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Yeah? So there's, 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 there's an onus on them to be especially ready to share what they have and to invest what they have because they're investing in eternity. It's very, very important. This is straightforward, but it's not, I would imagine, easy. John Stott says, it's but a short step from wealth to materialism, from having riches to putting our trust in them, and many take it. Many take that short step. If this is you, I want to just say this. If you're in this position, keep your heart open to God. Have people that you're accountable to financially. Have people that you trust, that, you, that can ask you any question. Any question about your finances and your giving and your generosity. Not so you can boast you don't want it any more than one person or, you know, but I just say it's, it's healthy to have that. It's healthy to have just... Or just and I, and it, uh, the least thing is this, just keep bringing it before God. Say, God, are we still, is this still right with you? Am I, am I getting greedy? So important. 
Because if you don't, there's some serious warnings in the Bible. 1 Timothy 6 says this, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. See, it's about desire. Into a snare, it's a trap. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Not all evil, often misquoted, all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. See his pastoral heart. It's my heart for you. It's not just, I want, I want you to give more to the church. <laughs> it's not just that. Okay? You have to be before God. Maybe you don't just give to the church, you give to other things, but please give. Please give. I do not want you to pierce yourself with many pangs, fall into a snare. And one other one here, one John says this, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And the context here of deed and truth is that you give, you love practically. So the conclusion is this, biblically neither riches nor poverty are a sign of greater or lesser spirituality. Life is much more complex than that. Neither are biblical ideals. The biblical ideal is having enough and being content. Final scripture from Proverbs 30. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me. So there we have it. We are called to be radical, different. This is all about your heart. This is all about your heart. What's going on in your heart? Are you giving? Are you giving? Are you living a generous life? The biblical principle is your first fruits. You give first. You don't give what you got left over. You give what you give first. That's the first thing you do. That's the way Christians should live. Because you're saying it's all yours, Lord, and I give it back to you anyway, and I sow it into something of it's kingdom value. It's very challenging stuff. We'll do Q&A for five minutes, question and answer. For five minutes, then we'll gather back in and sing some more songs. Rebecca. I would be very, very um, diligent about discovering what they're doing with that money, how the money actually works. I would always be looking to support something that preaches the gospel and provides material needs. I think if you just do, if you, if you just go down either side, it's warped. It's not mature. Because we believe, we believe in relieving temporary need. Absolutely. But also, surely, we believe biblically, deeply, that we are eternal. And that we we're either going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. And the whole thing hangs on how we respond to Jesus. And so to invest money into something that has got no concern for someone's eternal well-being, I just think, as a Christian, you know, so I think yeah, if you can find something also that is church-based, I would say not just, Christ, not just it's Christian, church-based. Because it's one thing to go into a town, give someone some sack of grain, preach the gospel and leave, what have you left? You need to leave a community of people there that are going to be radical, have a radical impact on that community. So it's a church planting, church-based thing. I say it takes a lot of wisdom and think it through really carefully. Don't just respond to guilt. I would avoid absolutely giving to anything to the guys on the street that the chuggers. Just wouldn't do it. Just wouldn't do it. Okay? It's manipulative very often. It's guilt-based. It's not premeditated. It doesn't come out of here in the Lord. You've just been cornered. Don't do it. It's not your money. It's the Lord's if you're a Christian. Should be responsible for it. Anything else? Claire. Um, so the idea of saving your 
It's an issue of conscience. Because you can argue from Proverbs, look at the end, he stores up, da-da-da-da-da. And Jesus says, Jesus says you know, um, what you must definitely do is store up for eternity. So the concept of storing up for the future is fantastic, but make sure you do it for eternity. Okay? So other Christians respond very differently as to savings for this life, next life. Um, what, what, who made the comment? Oh, he's not, he's not here. He made a really funny comment on the rainy day thing. It made me laugh. But you get some people, that they're, they're, they're the save up for a rainy day people, okay? You know. I think someone said, don't, up for a ra- don't save up for a rainy day because then you're going to have one. Something like that. It's something quite humorous, you know. But you can have different approaches. Some are really into the saving thing. Others, others don't. And some, different ones can look upon one another judgmentally. As one's more or less spiritual. I, wouldn't go, I think it's an issue of conscience. The issues are this, though, that you're being generous, that you're prioritising, you're giving before anything else, which is you're investing in eternity. Okay? Seb. You can't, be, you can't be seen as being more affluent than those you are trying to reach. Um, I, I don't think I agree with that. I think that for a number, number of things, number one, it's very hard if you... If you it's, it's, it's easy to do if you're reaching a monoculture. Yeah, because everyone's the same level of... or a mono-social standing thing. Okay, so if you reach a particular state, it's easier to do. I still don't think it's wise, though. So I don't think you're necessarily modelling a godly attitude to money. You could, be, you could just be modelling something external. You can get people with no money that are really tired. People with loads of money that are really generous. So I think you want to you want to expose people to something a bit more of a rich tapestry than that, which is generosity. And so I open my home. You know, I, I can have a nice carpet, but you're welcome to walk on it. Yeah. No, I'm not going to have a nice carpet because their carpet's horrible. No, but neither. I'm not going to have a nice. I'm going to have a nice carpet, but what we'll do, we'll sort of cover it in plastic, and look at it, and put a little plaque by it saying this is a really nice carpet. So it becomes. <laughs> so your home becomes a museum. You don't want. Do you see what I'm saying? That's, that was my response to that. Anything else? Lola. Um, I know the Bible says that a good father leaves um, an inheritance for his children and his children's children. Sure. How does that tie in with um, what the sermon is I think if you're able to do that, that's fantastic. I think for, for the calling of God on some people's life, that's not the case. But they may leave them a fantastic spiritual legacy. Well, it can be finance. That's not, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I wouldn't say that. So for the person who God calls to actually give up everything and you know, go and reach a, a tribe in you know, Borneo or something like this, the bottom line is they're probably not going to have loads financially to leave to their child. But man alive, what a legacy of absolute commitment to Christ. So I think as a father, you want, but you, you, know, you don't want to just be kind of silly. Don't you, see, the problem, is, is that it, the problem with all this stuff is people. People ruin it. So... <laughs> So you get you get you get scatterheads who then say right you know and they give everything away and just, just trying to prove they're really spiritual God hasn't told them to do it and then they give everything away just just stupid things and then their children are left in poverty that's not spiritual do you see what I'm saying so it's not just a bit silly there's a wisdom in it but you've got to grow in maturity I think it's it's too easy isn't it to to just throw out a caricature that's how I do it because it takes no thought. It takes no wisdom, it takes no maturity. We're to grow, aren't we, so we can make right godly decisions. But there should be rich in the church, and the, but there shouldn't be those in the church who are not able to make ends meet. There shouldn't be those in the church who are lonely. There shouldn't be those in the church who are living in poverty. There shouldn't be. And if we're aware of it, we have to do all we can out of our resources to meet that need. Absolutely. 
And if we don't, we are being ungodly and unchristian. And you've got no right to go and join a mums and tots group for the church reaching out there. You've got to get your own house in order first. Absolutely. Okay? Let's end with that, um, that wonderful quote from 2 Corinthians. I haven't got it up on the screen. I don't even know exactly where to find it. But it says roughly this. Uh, something like this. Uh, let's remember Jesus, who though he was rich, became poor. That through his poverty, we might become rich. Amen? We... Was it on there? He's a geezer, isn't he? He's an android. How does he do that? It's amazing, John. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake, I mean just, you want to be inspired to give? The gospel. The gospel. You are living in the good of someone giving themselves to you. Yeah? Let that inspire you. You know the grace. That you, be, that you by his poverty might become rich. I tell you what, you might be finding it hard at the moment in the recession. You may be struggling. Job seekers, allowance, and all. And just, if you're in Christ, you're rich. And it is our absolute responsibility as a church to help you practically, and we absolutely commit to that. But never lose sight of the fact, in Christ, you are rich. Because he gave himself for us that we might inherit this amazing kingdom forever. Amen? Amen. All right, guys. I know it was long, but I really wanted to uh, tackle it properly. Like I said, at the family meeting, we're going to go into detail of just some things we've been working through as a leadership team as to practically how we can really help as a church to really live up to this. So, if the band would like to come up, we're going to take the bread and the wine to remember that Jesus' blood was shed for us on the cross and his body was broken for us so that we could know new life. So shall we stand?